many years ago, about maybe actually 17, 18 years ago, I was uh, in Florida at a, um, at a sporting event. And I was talking to a, um, a dear uh, brother in Christ who would be his future mother-in-law, uh, who was sharing a story with me. And I'm curious, uh, maybe you've experienced something like this yourself, uh, knowing someone of this situation. Uh, she had shared with me that uh, she had known of this young lady that uh, had come to Christ. She had heard the gospel, she was excited, and um, she accepted Christ. And as she did, uh, she uh, immediately began to come to Bible studies. A church uh, started to come to worship on a regular basis, uh, got involved in their um, singles ministry, their college and career ministry. And uh, it seemed as if uh, she was, uh, we use the term, on fire for Christ. And um, she began opening up her home for Bible studies as well. And she said that she had lost touch with her, and, and then she uh, wanted to find out how she was doing, like about six months later. So she was in touch with folks that knew of her and said, hey, where's so-and-so? I haven't seen her in quite some time. And they said, well, neither have we. Um, it seems like she's almost dropped off the face of the earth. We've tried to contact her. She really hasn't been um, responding well. Um, sometimes she doesn't respond at all. And then she stopped, and then she looked at me, and, and she said, you know, I, I think she's lost her salvation. You ever think that that's possible? You ever hear anybody say that to you, that a person was once a Christian, and then they apostatize, and, and they lost their salvation? I think our passage today uh, really does speak a lot about that. And in, uh, in order to really understand that, we're going to cover a little bit of ground with our Scots Confession this morning as well to put it all together. Uh, if you haven't uh, turned to uh, the page in your, in your Bibles uh, for our passage this morning, let me encourage you to do that. Uh, it is going to be from the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Would you uh, please uh, rise for the hearing of God's Word? <clears throat> Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in on it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And the other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing, and yielding thirtyfold, and sixtyfold, and hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. 
and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution comes on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for those things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Our passage this morning picks up uh, with the Lord being by the water. Again, in, in a boat. He is doing what he's teaching. But we're told that he's teaching in parables. Parables themselves are stories that are similar to or something like. They are in an understandable narrative form that is that its proper meaning, however, can be concealed from its hearers, such as, for example, the parable of Nathan, when he rebuked David. And so from a Hebrew perspective, it was a mystery. A parable is a mystery for which God reveals. And to be properly understood needs explanation. So a parable is something that God reveals to us, and we need his explanation for us to understand. So in this section itself, Mark's, in, in Mark's gospel, we're able to discern that uh, what has been dubbed a sandwich technique is present. A sandwich technique. This is given to us by Dr. James, sorry, Dr. James R. Edwards. This is when Mark begins a teaching and inserts or interrupts, or seemingly interrupts, the story with another story and then picks up again. This discerned pattern is used throughout the Gospel of Mark, and its purpose is that the centerpiece provides us a clue to interpret and understand the outside pieces. In this passage, we begin with the teaching of the parable in verses 1 through 9, and then it seems as if we're interrupted in verses 10 through 12, and then in verses 13 to 20, we pick back up again for this parable's explanation, if you will. Now this morning I'm going to work through the two end points first, and then I'm going to circle back to the center point, and then draw some conclusions from it. But first I'm going to talk about the doctrine of the visible church as it relates to the kingdom of God, because I think it's very important for us to understand it. Now this parable itself has been viewed in a variety of different ways. But the two major ones, perhaps you've heard it, right? It's, uh, it's either the parable of the so- sower or it's the parable of the soils, one or the other. I think that, frankly, uh, it's really both. One, one really can't understand it in light of the other. And I think ultimately what it has to do with is what Jesus said in the boat, that this is a parable about the kingdom of God and us to un- for us to understand it. So... How are we to understand the the kingdom of God? 
Unfortunately, it's been misunderstood throughout the ages by both Christians and non-Christians in a variety of different ways. I'm going to point out three different ways it's been misunderstood. The first one is that people have seen the kingdom of God as lands or countries that are occupied predominantly by Christians. And so people think that that's part of the kingdom of God. Sometimes people think that it's the institutional church, that that is the kingdom of God. Another way is that uh, it's believed to be heaven itself, exclusive of any physical domain on our planet. But all of this is to misunderstand the true intent of any kingdom, as these views only focus on what? Location with boundaries. When Jesus came, he said that we are to believe and repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. We must remember that ultimately a kingdom represents a rule by a monarch. What we have to recognize is that the kingdom of God does reside in heaven and on earth, but not in the way that we normally think. Its presence here on earth is in the hearts of believers. Those who have heard the good news of the kingdom of God, made a profession of faith, and have become disciples or followers of Christ. The kingdom of God is made manifest by the church, not the brick and stone buildings that, that we gather in. You see, buildings come and go, but the kingdom of God and people is what's eternal. So when we say that the church is the manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth, we mean that it's all believers and their children who make up the community of God. This would be known as the visible church. However, the visible kingdom of God is filled with many disciples who profess to be followers of Jesus, but are truly not regenerated. The visible church is what you and I see. It's, it's, popu it's populated formally with people who enter the church by baptism, whether as infants, children, or adults. It is what we literally see. Now, whenever you observe the local visible church, a community of believers, either from within or from without, Anyone can see the outworkings of the church, but that does not reveal who truly is saved and who is not. That's very hard to determine, if not impossible, for us to look at other people and say this person is saved or is not saved. However, there is within the visible church something that we call the invisible church. When I say invisible, I don't mean that it's a hidden away somewhere, doing secret things. The invisible church is made up of all those who are within the church, disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, who are regenerated. They are the elect of God, those that have been reborn by the Holy Spirit. These are the ones who will see, experience, and receive the blessings of the kingdom of God for what it is now, and will be in its fullness when Jesus returns. The point being that not all those who are within the community of God, who call and identify themselves with it, are, as the apostle teaches, 
belong to Israel. We read that and we understand that uh, when Paul, the Apostle Paul, taught us in Romans chapter 9 and verse 6, the second part, when he said, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So that is to say, we as the new Israel, the church, not all of us who are in Israel are part of the real Israel. So there are the elect, the, the chosen, the invisible, and then there is the broader church, which is the visible church, made up of everyone who's made a profession of Christ and their children. All right, so this distinction is very important for us to make um, as it will help us to understand the parable this morning. Therefore, we are to see that there are many, even within the church today, and I'm speaking not just narrowly here, I'm talking broadly, who are formerly Christians or disciples of Jesus, but are actually not saved. Now let's take a look at uh, each one of these soils as response to the kingdom message. So this uh, parable begins with the sower who's just sowing seed. Now, in, in Mark's retelling of this parable, Jesus nowhere states that he is the sower. But in Matthew's recounting of this parable, he provides the detail for us that Jesus identifies himself as the sower. Matthew 13, 37, he states, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. But by extension, we must realize that the apostles and the disciples of Christ in every generation are sowers who represent Christ. That would be, in essence, ourselves as well today. Mark doesn't define what the seed represents, but in Luke's retelling, we discover in 8.11 that it is the word of God, the gospel, which has the power to bring about life. So, the first soil is not landing on plowed ground. It is upon the path the sower walks on. It has nothing to fall into. That is why the birds come and quickly eat it. But what does the soil represent? The heart is the soil upon which the seed lands. Obviously, what the Lord has in mind here is not the human organ, but it is the way one responds to the word of God or seed. The heart moves accurately, the heart more accurately represents the type of faith upon which the good news of the kingdom of God lands. It is the quality or nature of faith. The ground upon which this seed falls does, not, um, <clears throat> does nothing about it. It does not welcome it or absorb it. So also the person that hears it does nothing with it. Jesus says that this type of person hears the good news of the kingdom, but it is snatched from him. The hearer does not act on anything that he has heard, although he may sense a spiritual value to it, but he does nothing to reflect upon the message he has heard. He does not meditate upon it. He hears it and then moves on. And we soon discover that this type of person has lost what he Heard. It's as if it has gone in one ear and out the other. He does not receive it. Do you know people like that? 
Sometimes we call them little children, but they don't have to be little children, right? They'll hear what you have to say, but afterwards, they go about their business. Their ears are always ready to listen to other viewpoints, and, and once they hear your view, they're ready to move on to the next thing, the next interesting, the tantalizing idea, philosophy, or religion. This is how the evil one can come quickly and snatch away the seeds of the gospel. He will give them something else to ponder. This is not genuine faith, but it's just surface area intellectual curiosity. Let me ask you a question. Is Christianity for you an intellectual curiosity? Is it a research paper that you are writing for the university of your mind? This road is and has been well-traveled throughout the centuries. What is this road? It is the road of the hard heart. What makes a hard heart? Simply put, it's sin. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that mankind has fallen to a downward spiral, and the reason he gives, because people love their sin. The hardened heart does not want to listen to the truth because it has to admit that it is a miserable sinner in front of a holy God who deserves punishment. Oh, but that sin is so sweet. He does not want to give it up. His heart is hardened to the gospel. If within the next few weeks or months, you find yourself not attending church, not pursuing Christ, personal holiness, praying, and reading the word of God, I want you to ask yourself, do I love my sin? Do I love the momentary pleasures of this world over Jesus? Do I really not want to confess that I am a miserable sinner deserving of an eternity in hell? Am I the first type of soil that Jesus spoke of? Now, the bedrock of Galilee and in Palestine is often close to the surface. Whenever seeds fall upon rocky grounds, there's a very little depth of soil, and the soil can have a shallowness to it. As a result, it is not enough to sustain long-term growth. However, it is possible for seeds to land upon the soil and, and have it shoot up a little bit of a plant. But due to its roots not being deep and having no access to water to sustain it over a period of time, it dries up and dies in the hot, scorching sun. But this type of disciple gladly, impulsively, immediately, eagerly accepts the message of the kingdom of God and sprouts up. But this person never really considers that true discipleship contains a sense of surrender, selflessness, self-denial, sacrifice, suffering, 
He really hasn't thought through the way of salvation. He hasn't thought about the road of the cross, its suffering and its sacrifice. This disciple has a shallow heart as he does not take the time to consider what it means to be a true disciple of Christ. Have you taken the time to consider the cost of following Christ? Have you just taken it for granted? There is a cost for following Christ. And verse 17 translates the end result of this believer as falling away. But in the Greek, it intimates taking offense. The thought here is that this person concludes following Christ as a trap. He says, look, if following Jesus means persecution, forget it. He is repelled by it because it did not live up to his expectations. It didn't live up to what he assumed or was promised him. The time of trial is the end for this person's faith in Christ. How does the thought of persecution sit with you and your commitment to Christianity? The man heard the word and received it with joy. This tells us that it is possible, it is indeed very possible, for the unbeliever to comprehend the message of the gospel. We should not automatically assume unbelievers are incapable of understanding the work of Christ on the cross. In fact, it can give them joy to know that they can receive forgiveness for their sins and even start to do good deeds. But for them, it's a provisional impulsive desire that has no basis in a full understanding of what it means to be a Christian, to give yourself fully to Christ. Jesus tells us in verse 17, there is no root in him. He may begin to act like a Christian, talk like a Christian, respond like a Christian, smell like a Scratch that. I, I don't think we have a particular odor. But I, I think you get the point, right? When the difficult times come, this person's just not going to endure. He thinks that Christianity is a good thing. He'll give it a try, and it's okay, just as long as it doesn't disturb his life. Now, the Lord explains to us that the tribulations and the persecution from this world are not a possibility. They're a reality. And when it comes, it can scorch your faith. When the time for testing comes, will you wither away and die or stay standing in the kingdom of God? Now, the third soil that our Lord refers to is soil that contains thorns. Even among this ground, there is some growth evidenced. This type of growth is challenged by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. 
the lure of wealth, power, fame, fortune, glamour, is a far cry, isn't it, from trials of persecution and pain. But nonetheless, it becomes a test by which one reveals the soil of their souls. A poor person deceives himself into thinking that if, if only I can get rich, I will be happy and secure. The rich person thinks that if I had just a little bit more wealth, I would be satisfied, as if it would give him contentment. True contentment comes only from trusting in Jesus and having a relationship with him. Wealth, indeed, can be deceitful. This is so because it promises a sustained, serene security that brings on happiness. But it never, in the end, does sustain. There's nothing wrong with money intrinsically. But the trap is when we make it our idol and we we pursue it for what we want, what we need, instead of trusting in God. God is the only one that can give us security, no matter what the circumstance. And money comes and goes. Jesus will always be there. Now, let me ask you a question. If I were to tell you that prior to um, worship service this morning, I made an arrangement with a very wealthy benefactor who is willing to and is going to set up a table uh, in the narthex. So after worship today, if you want, uh, you can go up to him and he's going to give you a check for $10 million. Anyone who wants it, but you have to renounce Christ. Would you take it? Would you be willing to renounce Christ? Something to think about. See, this, at first, this soil or faith appears to be growing roots, which the other ones didn't do. But it has no moisture to draw upon. But this soil space is occupied and has competition to being permanently rooted in its heart. The pressures of life will come. They come, don't they? Anxieties will always present themselves. But instead of staying steadfast in Christ, which is the true solution to your worries, anxieties, and fears, this parable informs us that the so-called disciple gives into the deceit of wealth to solve his problems, his anxieties, and his worries. And in the greatest of ironies, he calls Christianity deceitful because he believed that it promised him comfort, wealth, and health. He instead falls away from Christ and bows down to pursuing another avenue to solve his problems, which is really the reason why he turned to Christianity in the first place, thinking that Christ would serve him in that way. The thorns of the deceitfulness of riches come and choke the word. These thorns will betray the heart of a person who claims to be a Christian. This faith 
has competition. The weeds choke off the good seed, showing us that it is not grounded in good soil, which produces a continued yield. And the fourth and final ground that the seed lands upon is good, rich, fertile soil. This type of soil of the soul takes root. It lands upon good faith. The fourth soil seems to be good soil that is useful to the sower because it produces valuable and sustained crops for the kingdom. It is unlike the other types which appear to be producing and then suddenly die off. The Christian's experience is a faith, not of a sprinter, but one of a long-distance runner, one who runs until the end. This is the soil that places hope in Christ throughout his entire life. And the proof of this is the consistent fruit that he yields. The yield may be different in each believer. This depends upon their gifts, talents, circumstances, and desire to bring glory to God's name. You see, it's not sufficient to say, I believe in Jesus, and I repent of my sins. I stand justified in God's sight. For when you are justified, the fruit of your justification is your works. You're not saved by your works, but your profession of faith will be vindicated, as, as James says, is justified by the evidence of an active faith that produces godly behavior throughout your entire life. Is this the soil of your soul? Is there evidence of good works in your life? If there is, why do you do it? Is it to gain favor with God for your salvation? To be saved? Or is that of a heart of gratitude and love for what Jesus has done for you? I think the only one that really can answer that question is you. Which one of these soils are you? four to choose from. Now, Jesus ends this parabolic teaching to the crowds in verse 9 by saying, if you have ears to hear, then hear. This is to say that there is more to this story than appears on the, no pun intended, on the surface. The center part of the sandwich is the key to understanding the outer parts. Verses 10 through 12 tell us that the secret of the mystery of the kingdom of God has been given. This given is in what's called the divine passive. This means that it is a gift from God and not of human achievement. This knowledge of God is not attained by natural means. So what is the overall meaning of this sandwich? It is that the clue to receiving the kingdom of God is found in Jesus. 
Those that are with Jesus and do the will of God, they are insiders to whom the mystery has been revealed. Those that are on the outside and not with Jesus, they are the ones for whom the parables are unclear. This parable, as Dr. Edwards states in his commentary, is like the cloud separating the fleeting Israelites from the pursuing Egyptians, bringing darkness on the one side and light to the other. That which is blindness to Egypt was revelation to Israel. The same event was either a vehicle of light or darkness, depending upon one's stance with God. Only when one is in fellowship with Jesus can one understand the kingdom of God in parables and the further truths that they reveal. In conclusion, I believe that this parable is designed to communicate that there will be those with, who will reject the message of the gospel and those that will accept it. But for those that are in the kingdom of God, the visible church, at times, it will be difficult to distinguish who is genuine and who is not. Just like my friend who told me and asked me that question and assessed that that person lost their salvation. But they did not have the understanding of this parable and the doctrine of the visible and invisible church. That's why the scripture teaches us that there will be what? Wolves in sheep's clothing even within the church. But what is this parable saying to you? You who are members of the visible kingdom of God. Well, first, for those of you who believe yourself to be a Christian, you must ask yourself, whether your faith has roots in Christ, or if you have the type of faith that will not sustain you when the troubles of the world come. Secondly, those that produce fruit, even proclaiming the gospel, but yet are trusting Jesus with a provisional, tentative, or conditional faith, do not possess saving faith. The point is that even those that are not genuinely saved, regenerated, or born again can proclaim the gospel. We should be reminded that it hasn't been long in the gospel itself, the story of the gospel of Mark, gave us the names of the apostles, the insiders, and the last one being Judas. We are to see that the kingdom possesses individuals who are not regenerated Christians, who will do works that are no different than the regenerated believer. Scary stuff. For those who have genuine faith that derives itself from God and places it solely on what Christ has done on the cross can have a sense of peace. That's all what we want, isn't it? a sense of peace. We have a sense of peace in knowing that should we die today, that we are going to heaven. Do you have that sense of peace and comfort? 
If you do, know that one, no one can take that away from you. No one can snatch you from His Majesty's hand. Rest in that peace. Fourthly, this parable reminds us, nay, warns us, that the gospel must be presented not only to those outside the church, but those inside the church over and over again. We must evangelize those that are in the church. This parable teaches us that the kingdom of God will face many challenges, but in the end, the church will be victorious. Praise the Lord. Now lastly, let's talk a little bit about the crop yield. Let me just say, be careful. Don't try to keep up with the Pauls and the Peters and the Jameses on what the yield is in your life. Conversely, don't compare yourself to people producing less or none. This can lead to arrogance and pridefulness and spiritual laziness. Do not compare yourself to people who are producing more, as this can lead to disappointment, maybe depression, and a sense of worthlessness in the kingdom. You must focus on the most crop that you can produce in your life with where God has placed you and with gifts that he has given you. Do not assume that this parable makes a connection between the quantity of crop with heavenly reward, as this is not the focus of our parable at all. Instead, this parable demands that each one of us look to ourselves and how we have responded to the hearing of the message and invitation to the kingdom of God and ask the following question. Which soil am I? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great invitation into the kingdom of God. We look to you to prepare our hearts, our soil, so that your Holy Spirit can work within us. We do ask that if there are any here that are not saved, that have not committed themselves to Christ, that you would be the one that would usher them into the kingdom by faith and faith alone, and that you would work your grace in their lives so that they may produce yields of 10, 50, many, many fold within their lives, all throughout their lives. And we pray, Father, that, that indeed that you would remind us of the great love of Christ that made it possible for us to be able to be members within the kingdom of God. Help us to be vindicated of the professions of faith that we make by the fruit that you work within us. Help us to be focused upon ourselves 
in the work that we do and not be concerned about what other people do or don't do, but rather help us to express our love for you by serving you and by serving our neighbor, by loving you and by loving our neighbor. We ask that by doing so that you would be pleased to glorify yourself in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.